Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSE podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Stepping back for a second, if I were to attempt to convince courts to make some changes, probably at the top of my list would be don't charge filing fees for defendants to respond to debt collection cases. Craziest thing I've seen while working in this space is that a lot of states, around 25% of them charge filing fees like California, Arizona, Minnesota, sued for debt in California, you might have to pay $450 just to respond to the lawsuit. I'd like to know how much money the state of California has made off of those filing fees. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people are sued for consumer debt in America's courts. In the 20 years spanning 1993 to 2013, debt suits more than doubled from an estimated one in nine civil cases filed in the U.S. to one in four. The cases are largely between debt buying companies and individuals for less than $10,000. Making matters worse, over 90% of defendants are without legal representation, generating defaults and losses for consumers, regardless of the merits of the case. Now, coming out of the pandemic, advocates are preparing for a tsunami of debt collection cases. To understand how we got here and what can be done to help people facing down a debt suit, I'm joined by three guests. Erica Rickard is the Project Director for Civil Legal System Modernization at the Pew Charitable Trust. Ariel Levinson-Waldman is the founding president of Zedek DC, a legal aid organization. And George Simons is the founder and CEO of SoloSuit, a technology company helping self-represented litigants in debt cases. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Erica, I wanted to start with you, and I was hoping you could give a national sketch of the scope of this problem. Sure. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. So I work on a project at the Pew Charitable Trusts that's focused on civil courts around the country. And what we started with was looking at what drives civil court dockets. And we found that Debt collection lawsuits are the single most common type of civil court case today. And as you said earlier, that's a number that's grown over time over the past three decades. We're also seeing that number continue to stay very high throughout the pandemic. So our time frame of looking at the most common types of civil court cases span at times when our nation's economy was strong, when our nation's economy was weak, and one constant that we've seen throughout the past few decades has been this steady and even dramatic growth in debt collection lawsuits, both in sheer volume and as a percentage of the overall civil court docket. And what characterizes these kinds of cases is both their volume and that they're really, really similar in what actually transpires in those cases. So these are cases that are dominated by a small number of plaintiffs against a really wide swath of consumer population across the country and where one side is represented and the other side often fails to participate in the court case at all. Ariel, so hearing what Erica is talking about at the national level, is this what you're seeing in Washington, D.C. as well? Thanks so much, Jason, and, and thanks to you and LSC for uh, hosting this important conversation. It is what we're seeing in the District of Columbia. At CEDIC D.C., our mission is to serve District of Columbia residents with lower incomes who are facing debt-related problems. Um, to safeguard their legal rights and financial interests. And I want to talk a little bit about why the things that Erica identified are so important. We focus on this work 
because in the 21st century, it has really emerged as a major issue of racial justice. This flows from two things, both in the District of Columbia and nationally, from centuries and decades of structural racism, we have as a result of public policy choices by the government, as well as corporate activity, including debt collector activity, we have arrived at a place as a society where wealth tracks race. How does that play out here in DC? The statistically typical white family in DC has wealth defined by net assets that is 81 times that of the statistically typical African-American neighbor. The disparity with respect to Latino community is also distressing at 24 times the disparity. In addition, the explosion of debt collection cases nationwide and in our region and, and here in the District of Columbia that Erica alluded to has a disparate impact with regards to wealth extraction of our communities of color. There was a really important piece of social science reflected in a ProPublic article from several years ago demonstrating in city after city after city that even when you control for income, debt collection impact is occurring more against African-American households than white households. This is so important because what we're talking about here is both the extraction of wealth from communities of color and the impairment of credit, which is an issue of economic citizenship. You wanna get a loan, you wanna get rental housing approval, you wanna get a mortgage in your future. Oftentimes you wanna get a job that's particularly important in major metropolitan areas. You wanna get a job that has a security clearance. Credit is the economic ticket to participation in that context. So we are seeing those issues here in the District of Columbia. We have seen a massive spike pre-pandemic in debt collection cases. And now we're looking at the upcoming tsunami that you referred to uh, right off in terms of framing this episode, which I appreciate. And we can talk about some of the details of what we're seeing and what to expect. But, but yes, the short answer to your question is we, we've absolutely seen the kinds of trends that Erica is describing. And George, to bring you into this conversation, you know, we hear Ariel talking about how these debt suits are pushing people kind of out of their economic citizenship within the United States. I'm, I'm curious for what you're seeing at Solo Suit. What types of debt are we talking about when we're talking about these cases? Because there's obviously plenty of different uh, versions of, of debt in America. Yeah, at Solo Suit, most of our lawsuits that we help with are for unsecured credit. So usually credit card debt or medical debt. Uh, those are the most common debts that we see people being sued over. The dynamic that stands out the most to me is the huge power asymmetry between the parties in the lawsuit. Like your, your regular person oftentimes hears about the, the reverse situation, like the underdog situation where you have a single individual suing a multi-billion dollar corporation in court, right? like the single person suing McDonald's over coffee. We hear about that in the, in the press a lot. Uh, but this is actually the reverse, and it's way worse. It's a multi-billion dollar corporation suing individuals in court. Right? You have these huge multi-billion dollar corporations, these debt collectors, suing a single individual in court. Uh, I just like imagine the power asymmetry. Uh, I just imagine like the fear that someone has when this huge group is waging a legal war against them in court. 
uh, you know, with Solo Suit, we jump in and we help those people. We try to even the battlefield for them. Ariel, when we talked before the show, one of the things you pointed out to me was this isn't just a legal battle for your clients. For a lot of these people, once this debt goes to collections, it also affects their personal lives. They are being harassed by debt collectors that are going above and beyond, presumably from my point of view, what should be legal. And I'm curious if you could talk to that a little bit, how this is affecting people beyond just what they're trying to manage in the courtroom. Yeah, it's a great question. And thank you for raising it. I want to start by just uh, picking up on something George said that I thought was just so important, which is the business model. The business model that has sprung up is to essentially exploit the fact that there is no right to counsel in civil cases and to assume and hope that most people will be steamrolled into not participating at all, into therefore creating a default judgment that allows in that pattern that George was describing, that allows the debt collector to then get the judgment and now be able to garnish wages and register that judgment with credit reporting agencies and tank people's economic futures as a result. And all of that comes from the fact that there is this exploitation of the system, what we talk about as the weaponization of the courts by these large companies that George was alluding to, including publicly traded multinational billion dollar corporations who depend on the fact that people will be either too busy, too overwhelmed, too scared if they are a member of an immigrant family, particularly this was an issue we saw in the Trump administration that continues to be a problem, to respond, to dis they will disengage from the legal system and therefore allow this exploitation that occurs in a lot of these debt collection suits. What does that look like to your question at the human level in terms of the impact? Well, there's the follow-up that happens of just the stress of of the fact of being sued. There's oftentimes the distress of the money disappearing. When wages are garnished, that's an incredible source of stress because literally up to a quarter of the paycheck disappears. And this is, um, this is oftentimes in the context, a typical client family for us does not have $400 in emergency savings to deal with a health crisis, for example. You also alluded to some of the concerns about what's happening outside of the courtroom. And here, we see the real stresses. And I think a lot of people not in poverty who may be also listening to this broadcast may relate to this. So many of us get calls from, whether it's a, a creditor or a fake creditor, emails, texts, calls. We've had clients just talk about the enormous stress that this causes. And under the Trump era CFPB- That's the consumer, the federal- the consumer, consumer Financial Protection, Protection Bureau. Thank you. Thank is, you. Which is the lead federal regulator in this space. It has been lawful for debt collectors to contact people dozens of times every week and cause this stress. Here in the District of Columbia, our council has taken, in, in partnership with our attorney general, has been taking steps to address this. We are in the midst of a very exciting reform. It's the first debt collection reform of our permanent law since the Nixon administration in the early 1970s, before there was even partial home rule here in DC. And so one of the things that this law will do, it's now passed a first reading, we are hopeful it's going to become permanent law um, in several months. And what the law will do is create a cap, four calls per account. It's not perfect from our perspective, but it's a major step forward in terms of creating some basic limits on how much people can be harassed and then uh, limiting just how much of a feeling uh, of being overwhelmed occurs as a result. 
I think in general, hosting the show for me has been an exercise in asking the questions like, how in God's name is that legal? And this debt issue really drives home, I, I think, a lot of those questions. You were talking about the business model uh, for debt buyers. There's this whole other issue of zombie debt, this idea that people can buy up uncollected consumer debt for cents on the dollar and then do exactly what you're talking about and start harassing people, set up lawsuits with the hope that they the defendant will not respond, and then they can go and take that court uh, judgment to collections and, and harass the person and shake them down for money that they previously haven't paid. And uh, Erica, this is a big question, and it's just a part of my, my confoundedness on this whole topic from the research I was doing. Like, how did we get here? And what's making it worse? Well, one of the things that Ariel described was a change in business model by the actors who are bringing these debt collection lawsuits. And I want to contrast that against what hasn't changed by and large across the country is the way that courts handle these kinds of lawsuits. So the kind of original, before our country was even founded, set of notions about how the court system worked was designed for an adversarial process with two attorneys arguing the facts in the law and a neutral judge rendering a decision based on that uh, expert information. And as we've described what happens in debt collection cases, that's not the scenario. Rather than having two attorneys, each representing the two different sides of the story, we have one uh, repeat actor represented by counsel or by a professional who's in the courtroom as frequently as an attorney. Uh, and on the other side, either a consumer representing themselves by and large, or most often no one at all, just an empty chair. And the court system has not caught up to today's reality of what these debt collection cases, eviction cases, and an increasing share of other kinds of civil court cases really look like. And so the kinds of steps that a court can take to uh, ensure that all parties are aware of what's happening and that they know what is supposed to happen next and uh, that the court can review the validity of a claim even if a defendant isn't present, those kinds of steps are only now starting to be taken by a handful of states and jurisdictions around the country. One of the things that I, I keep coming back to in this work is that injustice is very profitable within the United States. And I think debt buyers are, exemplify that trend. Uh, and we can see this in other parts of both the civil and criminal system is that there is money to be made uh, in perpetuating injustice in the United States. And one of the things I am curious about, and George, specifically, I wanted to get your feelings on this uh, as someone who runs a private company who is trying to bring justice to the United States, is like, what does that pitch look like when you're talking to investors or potential uh, supporters? You went through Y Combinator last year, which is a very well-known, very well-respected uh, accelerator in the Bay Area that, among other companies, Airbnb, DoorDash, Instacart, all went through that program. Like, what does that look like to you when someone like Y Combinator can look at a company like Encore, the nation's largest debt buyer that, that has been insanely profitable, especially during the pandemic, and then a smaller company like yours that says, no, we need to be putting money and energy towards more just outcomes, not just more profitable outcomes? I'd say for solo suits, and talking with investors, I think it probably looks a lot like it does for any other company. Um, I think most investors are interested in, uh, you know, the usual things investors are, which is making more, making more money, 
right? I think there's a you know pretty small handful of like impact investors. I think that really invest like first for impact. Uh, you know, some investors would like to make or like have a good impact, but I, I think most of them are following through on their fiduciary duty of growing their growing their funds. With SoloSuit, you know, we are a technology startup. We treat ourselves like a technology startup, and we are uh, trying to help people. And for us, that just follows like a, a pretty simple path that I think a lot of businesses would. Uh, we're just doing what's best for the people that come to us. And in our case, that means helping them win their lawsuit. And we're able to do that uh, pretty well, right? Usually about 90% of people lose their lawsuit, oftentimes by default. Without SoloSuit, with SoloSuit, we help people, we have an over 70% win rate in a lot of states. Uh, so we totally flip that number around and we do it just by helping people file uh, an answer document to respond to the lawsuit so they don't default. And we find a lot of cases uh, just get dismissed uh, right off the bat once an answer is filed. Maybe around like 50% of cases just get dismissed and that matches with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's research that shows that around 50% of the time, people say they're being sued for a debt they don't know. Our dismissal rate pretty much agrees with that, where uh, if somebody actually files an answer, the debt collector can't prove they owe the debt, or they might just be suing the wrong person. The case just gets dismissed. And that's a really impressive outcome and one reason why I wanted to have you on the show for this particular episode. But I want to hold on this idea of investors for just a second. I think when I talk to other people in the for-profit justice technology world, uh, oftentimes what I hear from them is that funders who are predominantly white and male tend to fund white and male. We know statistics uh, back that up, but also like to fund solutions for problems that they themselves experience, like finding a place to stay on a vacation or getting food delivered to their house, right? And as Ariel pointed out early in the show, this is an issue that's primarily hurting poor and minority communities, which is not the makeup of the VCs around the United States. So I'm curious, like what your pitch looks like to get the VC population to care about this issue that they're probably not coming in personal contact with uh, in their day-to-day -day lives. You bring up a good point, right? I, I've, I've certainly, in pitches, I've certainly been met with a fair amount of like some perhaps like skepticism, uh, but sometimes people will be like, well, why the heck would I want to help debtors get off the hook? Right? They're debtors, they should pay the money. They got the money, they should pay. Um, so then I, I think I oftentimes go through that process of explaining, well, uh, one, it's a huge power asymmetry. Bad stuff happens in power asymmetries. People get taken advantage of, and that's what's happening here. A lot of people are just being sued for money they don't actually owe. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are just being sued. That is uh, one point. But then on the other hand, yeah, I, I think also investors, um, yeah, some of them don't necessarily understand like the problem is actually real. Like, well, I don't know anybody who's been sued for debt. I haven't been sued for debt. Sure. Uh, you know, can't imagine, can't imagine why somebody would be sued for something as small as a thousand dollars. Right. Right. But, uh, you know, I think for the, for the regular consumer, uh, it's very different. A thousand dollar debt is a huge, uh, huge ordeal, very painful, very painful experience. Um, and I think investors are interested in 
uh, solving pain points. They understand like the, the reality of a pain point and uh, a good business needs to solve like a serious pain point. And for me, uh, I usually point out that like SolarSuit is solving probably the most painful financial experience in someone's life. Being sued for debt doesn't really get worse. I mean, being sued is terrible. And then having allegedly a debt that you have to pay, also terrible. It doesn't get worse than that. That's totally fair. And I can see how that's compelling. Uh, one thing I want to make sure that we did, I mean, we focused a lot on where private actors are at on this particular issue. And uh, I want to make sure that we also have a conversation of what kind of public institutions roles are in exacerbating this particular issue. So Erica, I wanted to shift the conversation to you. In 2010, the Federal Trade Commission issued a report on the lack of adequate services to consumers in state courts. And they concluded, quote, the system for resolving disputes about consumer debt is broken, end quote. So I wanted to get a perspective on what role do court rules and court procedures have on exacerbating the consumer debt problem we're currently seeing in the US? They're the leading actor in the way that the debt collection lawsuits proceed and whether that is uh, for better or for worse, right? So um, the kinds of problems that were observed uh, by the FTC back in 2010, we can continue to document and see today when it comes to things like high numbers of people not being aware that they're being sued, high numbers of people not participating in court cases, potentially because they're not aware they're being sued. Um, and then really high rates of, in addition to those default judgments, the consequences that come with a default judgment, meaning the additional channels of court-enforced debt collection, garnishing wages, garnishing assets, even uh, in some cases, civil arrest and incarceration for failure to abide by a court order to pay a debt. Um, these are all uh, rules that uh, the processes, cultural habits, and uh, documented rules of how courts proceed and how courts operate with these cases. So one of the challenges that we've experienced in uh, pinpointing potential solutions that courts can implement or that even legislatures can implement for courts is the failure to recognize the scale and severity of the problem. So debt collection lawsuits uh, have largely flown under the radar for a lot of policymakers, even a lot of Supreme Court justices or uh, other state court leaders uh, because while the docket num the numbers on the docket are high, the relative amount of time that judges and court staff spend on debt collection lawsuits is relatively low because of this high rate of default judgments. There's not a lot of people in the courthouse arguing their debt collection cases, which means that those cases go pretty quickly. Those cases are uh, not necessarily something that is the pet project of an individual court leader, whether that's an administrator or a judge. So until we get to the point of being able to demonstrate the real level of scale and of severity of the harms that consumers experience in a community, it's harder to get policymakers and judges to focus on changes that need to be implemented. That's super interesting. And Ariel, one of the things that I was noticing or just thinking about in preparing for this show is that kind of this rise of debt suits that Erica's research has has clearly shown over the last few decades kind of corresponds with the slow death of class action lawsuits in the United States as a tool for consumer protection. And what I read in the ProPublica piece that was previously mentioned and work by Erica, Human Rights Watch, all of these other watchdog groups, is that there are chronic 
industry-wide problems uh, in the way that these companies are going forth collecting debts uh, through, through their business model. Uh, and I'm curious if, from your point of view, do you see any relationship with kind of the death of the class action in the United States with kind of this rise of uncontrollable small number debt lawsuits? I think there's a whole variety of developments that have combined to create these justice gaps or crisis of access to justice. And class action piece is certainly a part of it. I would lift up a couple other factors too. This is both the results and therefore an opportunity uh, of inaction and opportunity for action in a number of different sectors. And so one is that state court piece that Erica was referring to. And so here we're talking about rules made by state legislatures, procedural rules and evidentiary rules that are oftentimes made by the state courts. On top of that, we have major policy choices, both the federal and state level about how we're gonna allocate resources. And I will say everybody listening to this podcast is likely to be a taxpayer and the Legal Services Corporation is seed funding, many groups throughout the country who are doing work in this space. And it's such important work. Our partner in the District of Columbia, the Neighborhood Legal Services Project, and LSC grantee, we partner with them and others on the DC Debt Collection Hotline for all the reasons we're talking about. And so government, in terms of dollars and in terms of rules, can play a huge role. I also want to lift up the role of the private sector and picking up on some points that George was making. The private sector does include venture capitalists. That there's a role to be played there. And I appreciate the points that George was raising. It also includes, particularly in this, what we hope to be era of increased racial justice consciousness, it includes opportunities for impact investing through civil legal aid as an anti-poverty tool, as an anti-racism tool to level the playing field because for all the reasons George and Eric have been talking about, the asymmetries are massive and that creates problems. And I really do believe, and I think that so many people can understand that this is an un-American situation. The guys who are supposed to be the underdogs have no help. The guys who have tons of resources are really well-resourced. And everything that we tell ourselves about our legal system that Erica was describing in terms of two people on the opposite sides of the V going at it through a neutral process, that is in the overwhelming number of cases not happening. And it produces all of these bad results for both the individual families and for the basic fabric of society in terms of how we're allocating resources and whether we're setting people up to have social and economic mobility. And so I do think the class action piece uh, comes in there. Why? Because class actions are a way to have broad scale protections, sometimes almost as broad as a piece of legislation. And by curbing the class action, the systems here, there's multiple systems, have allowed for more gaps, more loopholes that can be filled by potentially abusive actions. And until and unless our laws combined with our resources, tighten those gaps, tighten the rules, provide the resources for people to get the help they need, we're gonna to continue to see these kinds of outcomes. There's so many different factors that are, are leading towards all this, but to hold on to the courts piece, George, one of the things I really like about the solo suit business model is that it throws a wrench in the gears of the debt collector's business model, right? Which is like, we want the smoothest, easiest, least resisting lawsuit to go forward, right? That's how they make money. And here you are for basically free 
offering that wrench to throw into the gears as a response to the lawsuit itself and, and your statistics speak for themselves. If they use your platform, they're, they're more likely to have a positive outcome, which is not um, the situation at large. Courts themselves are seeing a role to play in trying to work on being better at this as well, as Erica had alluded to, and, and Ariel as well. And recently, I wanted to talk about a project that was happening in your home state of Utah with their court system. There was this article by The Markup, which came out last week, and for reference, we're recording on March 22nd. Uh, and what it found was that the Utah courts have adopted an online dispute resolution system, basically an online chat system for people to resolve their debt cases so they don't have to come into court. Part of a product of the pandemic and not being able to go to a physical court, but also this idea that we need to put more justice online. But unlike the solo suit solution, what the markup found was that this approach just greased the wheels for the plaintiffs and made it even easier for them to win cases. I think the final conclusion was that the system was being used primarily by five payday lenders, and they were getting higher default rates on their cases through the online version of the debt suit than they were the in-person version of the debt suit. Uh, so I'm curious, like, how do you see it from the technologist's point of view? How should we be thinking about technology solutions in the debt consumer case? And what went wrong here in Utah? Because it seems like the type of project that advocates have been praying for for a decade. And now here we are seeing that the outcomes are not what advocates would have hoped for. Yeah, that was an exciting article for sure. Definitely an exciting read. I am in Utah and... You know, I've certainly had some great encounters and, and know some members of the advocacy groups that are making things happen in Utah, at BYU Law and on the Utah Supreme Court. And I'm a big fan of Justice Simonis and what he is doing to increase access to justice. I was sad to see that the ODR program, apparently, according to this article, is, is, is having a negative impact on and is actually increasing the number of default judgments uh, substantially in Utah. I'm not terribly surprised. I think stepping back for a second, if I were to attempt to convince courts to make some changes, probably at the top of my list would be don't charge filing fees for defendants to respond to debt collection cases. Uh, I think that's one of the least publicized and craziest thing I've seen while working in this space is that a lot of states, around 25% of them charge filing fees like California, Arizona, Minnesota, sued for a debt in California, you might have to pay $450 just to respond to the lawsuit. I'd like to know how much money the state of California has made off of those filing fees. I think that'd be like a very interesting research point. I think that's number one. Number two is put the address of the court on the summons. It seems <laughs> very, so easy. Very simple change. A lot of states, most states don't do it. Uh, Utah, Utah thankfully does do it. Also California does do it. They include like the mailing address of the court so that somebody can respond to the summons. Almost all states include the address for the debt collector, but they just assume that the regular consumer is going to know where their court is and even like what their court is, which they don't. And then third, this one's a little bit imaginative maybe, but I, I think for me, how I'm thinking of courts currently, as far as like what technology they should provide. And I'm probably pretty biased since I am a technology company. I would love to see courts consider their technology role to be more about creating an API, a application programming interface, and that being their primary 
technological role. Like from a strategy perspective, organizations should do what only they can do and what they're best at. Courts, uh, the only people that can provide court data are courts. They have all of that data, all of the docket, all of that information locked up in their programs. Some of them make it accessible, some of them don't. Personally, I think that one of their main goals for courts should be to make their data accessible through an API uh, rather than providing technology solutions themselves to consumers. Make an API, let, uh, let the free market, let other businesses build on that and build the best solutions for consumers. You sold me on the need for an API. Courts as a platform is an idea that we, we should be talking more courts about for sure. A lot of that is is aspirational uh, about where courts could be taking this work, about helping people. I mean, they could also just put solo suit on their uh, website in regards to resources for self-represented litigants. As we wrap up, now, Erica, we've talked a lot about the problems in the space from these businesses with unscrupulous business practices to the harassment that clients face to where courts are making this harder for consumers to be able to protect their rights. Where are the bright spots from your point of view around the country? Ironically, Utah is one of the bright spots. The story from the markup is a, is a really compelling and tragic one about failure to use the new tools in a way, in a, as a lever to improve processes, right? There, it wasn't a discussion of the ODR platform itself or the experience of trying to negotiate with the other party online being a problem. It was a failure in the court documents to notify consumers about the fact that they had to go online in the first place. And then if they failed to do so, the case was ended immediately with a default judgment, right? So there's an opportunity here to leverage, whether it's a technology innovation or another innovation as a moment to examine the existing steps and the existing process from the perspective of a person who has to navigate it by themselves and to make changes accordingly, rather than layering technology onto existing processes, but to change the processes themselves. And we're starting to see steps in Utah and in other states to do just that. Not immediate, but the changes that were recommended by the University of Arizona in that one example have started to be implemented now. We're starting to see other changes in other states when it comes to everything from making sure that consumers actually receive the court papers that they're meant to receive in these cases. So verifying the actual address of where somebody lives before you send them a court paper, having the responsibility be on the court itself to make sure somebody knows about the court case before issuing a default judgment. And then also we're seeing common steps when states start to take on some reforms in debt collection cases, they're taking on consistent reforms when it comes to requiring documentation of a debt. So seeing that someone provides proof of the amount, proof of the account, and proof of ownership as the kind of three key documentation steps that they're providing as before a judge issues a default judgment in a case. So we're seeing kind of smattering of states, a few before the pandemic, some during the pandemic, from everywhere from Texas to Maryland to Washington State to Colorado, taking these kinds of initiatives, and hopefully that momentum continues to build. Great. And as that uh, evaluation of those various smattering of projects, as you put it, occurs, I hope you'll, you'll all come back on and talk about what we're seeing uh, as far as what's being successful in this particular space, because it's such a big issue affecting so many Americans. Uh, but with that, I would like to thank Erica George and Ariel for being with us today on Talk Justice. For links to what we discussed, check out our show notes. 
If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Taché, and for everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.